Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Pentecost. Have we evolved beyond religion? Or is Christianity itself that mutation? We have reached the weekend in the Christian calendar that is identified as Pentecost. What is Pentecost? Well, in some ways, it may be the most important celebration in my Christian experience. Let me start by saying that, obviously, my, that means the most important celebration in the Christian calendar for me is not Christmas. I could make strong arguments in favor of it being Easter, but in many ways, I think Pentecost is the most important. It is certainly the most horribly underregarded. Orthodox Christianity is Trinitarian, with God interacting with creation in three primary and very different ways. One of those ways is creation itself, and you hear Christians describe the Creator as being God the Father. I want to get to that concept of fatherhood perhaps in a later show, but it's there. The other one is Jesus Christ, specifically the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. But what is the third? Well, it's simply this. Days after Jesus' crucifixion, Christian scriptures mention his post-resurrection interaction with disciples and hundreds of other people. He tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. The Acts of the Apostles, which appears in the New Testament, describes these events in the first couple of chapters. And essentially, the apostles gather together, the remaining disciples literally, they pick a replacement for Judas who had killed himself, And they wait in Jerusalem for something that had been described to them as an important and uh, perhaps even supernatural event. Well, to round out this story in any meaningful way, I'm going to need to paraphrase. And I think I'm going to spend most of my time paraphrasing the second chapter of Acts. Um, Essentially, all the believers had spread the word among those uh, who had been following Jesus. It wasn't just a group of 12 people. It was a group of 12 people, but it was also uh, some of their friends, some of their family, people that Jesus had healed. Uh, obviously, the uh, woman described most famously, uh, uh, Mary of Magdala, was not really um, you know, one of the 12 in any meaningful sense. She was a widow who had been cured of a mental disorder, at the very least a mental disorder, who had provided support. She was wealthy, or at least she had been a woman of some means, and she had been providing support for the ministry. Uh, so there must have been a fairly large crowd following Jesus. And certainly um, in the last days of his life, that crowd is described as first being a, you know, part of a triumphant march into Jerusalem, and then later as being uh, dispersed pretty quickly by the trial and crucifixion. But here, you know, just uh, 30, 40 days after the death and resurrection of Jesus, these people have gathered together in Jerusalem because they had been told by the resurrected Jesus that Something big was going to happen, and they should wait for it to occur. So um, the second chapter of Acts describes this as a noise from the sky, which sounded like a strong wind blowing, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And then something that looked like tongues of fire, which spread out and touched each person there. And the Bible actually can be quoted as saying, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to talk in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. Now, there were many Jews in Jerusalem at the time, 
religious men, travelers, people who had made a pilgrimage there for a particular time on the Jewish calendar of, of celebration, of feasting, quite literally. And they heard the noise and noticed that such a large crowd had gathered together, and they began to wonder if all of these people were drunk, that there was such a clamor, such a cacophony of foreign languages being spoken by people, many of whom clearly didn't have the credentials to speak in a foreign language. But these people who had come from all over, uh, North Africa, Asia Minor, and other places, were recognizing their own languages being spoken by these largely uneducated people. You know you're going to notice that right off. If you're in a foreign land, and you feel like a stranger in a strange land, and all of a sudden someone is speaking your language, and speaking your language and your dialect so well that you can pick up what it is they're saying. So quite a clamor arose, and quite a lot of attention was raised. And from this, Peter, now filled with the Holy Spirit, gave a message. Uh, talked a little bit about the prophecies in the Old Testament, uh, what Jesus did, um, Jesus fulfilling those prophecies, and that in his mind, something entirely new, a new paradigm, had come about. And a lot of that has everything to do with what is described here as tongues of fire. I don't think we encounter tongues of fire today in our modern world. And I'm you know, open to the idea that perhaps that could even have been allegorical. But he's trying to describe in ways that people would understand what it meant to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't the only occasion that Peter was involved in a description of events that led to the infilling of the Holy Spirit among a group of new believers. At the time, there was still this idea that Christianity was simply a sect of Judaism. Uh, the Christians would have felt that they were the sect of Messianic Jews who had recognized the fulfillment of prophecy as it occurred and were going down this new direction that God had pointed them toward. And the uh, Jewish leaders of the time would have seen them as a group of heretics. But in both cases, the perception would have been, this is a group of Jewish people. Now, they're either Jewish people who have gone completely awry, or they're Jewish people who have seen the act of the Lord and are responding to his direction. So it's in, inside that paradigm that you see what Pentecost is really all about. The way I prefer to think of it is that in Christ's earthly absence, having been crucified, died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, which really is what the first chapter of Acts is all about, with him gone, what is the relationship at that point in time? Is it the memory of, a, of a, an apocalyptic leader, um, not unlike perhaps the Nichiren form of Buddhism that is prevalent in Japan? Or is it something else? And in this case, I would say it's very clearly something else. What you have is the Holy Spirit coming as the third relationship with God. First, of course, being God the Father, God as creator, the God of the Old Testament. The second being Jesus, fulfilling prophecy, God among us, God on earth, Emmanuel, the, the second person, the second relationship, and the Holy Spirit being the third. Well, I'll talk a, a little bit more detail later on in the program about what the Holy Spirit does or what the Holy Spirit as a, as a concept means, who he is. Again, I feel a little bit uncomfortable referring to God as a he and to the Holy Spirit as a he. I think the concept is much, uh, goes well beyond gender and its complexity. But I'm pretty comfortable with referring to the Holy Spirit in the realm of personhood. And since male personal pronouns is how Jewish culture described God, I'm just going to go with it for now. Understand that I've got some reservations there. So what does he do? Well, a little bit later in the book of Acts, Peter describes a situation where 
he was perhaps at a time one of the leaders in the notion that Christianity was Judaism as it should be. Perhaps that was his, his attitude was that um, this was fulfilling prophecy. So it all kind of lived within the realm of what Judaism was all about. And I ascribe to the Holy Spirit what happened to Peter. He had a vision, and in the vision, he was told by God. He became aware of the fact that he was going to be visited by some men who were going to take him away to the home of of a Roman guard, of a Roman centurion, and he was supposed to go ahead and go there. He was going to allow that to happen. Well, what preceded this moment of clarity for Peter was a vision where he saw a uh, like a picnic blanket come out of the sky filled with all of the animals that the Old Testament law says you're not supposed to eat. Uh, it's got pigs, it's got lizards, it's got you know um, shellfish, just all the things that would have been ritually unclean food from a Jewish perspective. And a voice, uh, perhaps the voice of God, maybe the voice of an angel, but a voice that Peter audibly heard told him, take this food and eat it. And Peter, for you know more than just once or twice, said, hey, no, I'm not going to be eating this food. I'm a Jewish person. I'm ritually clean right now. That's not something I'm allowed to do. That's not something I'm going to do. It amazes me today that there are people, especially when those people are actually within the Christian church, who suggest that the, uh, the ceremonial laws or frankly, the letter of the law itself from the Old Testament applies. Because here we have Peter. We're talking, you know, the first six months after the death of Christ, being described as someone who's encountering a very clear vision that says, nothing is ritually unclean if I say it's not. So the voice of God is saying, hey, if I say you should eat it, you should eat it. Nothing is unclean that I make clean. And again, God speaking. So Peter does get the visitors that had been foretold to him, and he does go with them. And what he encounters is a Roman guard and his family who want to hear the gospel message because they have seen a vision that somebody called Peter has a truth that he can tell them that will change their lives forever. And they want to hear this message and they want to follow the spirit that they had encountered. So Peter shares the gospel with them and uh, he baptizes them. And the same phenomenon described in the second chapter of Acts now appears later here in the 10th and 11th chapters of Acts, where the Holy Spirit comes upon these people as well. And they are able to, you know, sort of be welcomed into the family of Christianity, despite the fact that as Gentiles, they would not have been viewed as ritually clean or even remotely acceptable uh, in the temple for the sake of argument. So the church for the very first time in this little section, many of the first 10, 11 chapters of the book of Acts, describes the movement of Christianity away from Judaism, not because it was kicked out and not because it rejected its Jewish heritage, but because the acts of the Holy Spirit in that story pointed in a new direction and the Christian leaders followed. So from that perspective, Pentecost is the day when the church gets together and celebrates the acts of the Holy Spirit. C.S. Lewis has described this in his book Mere Christianity as the moment of the beginning of a new evolutionary paradigm. Quite literally, he calls it out, at least potentially, as the next step in human evolution. Controversial? Oh yeah. Controversial in a way that I quite like. I like that it's controversial and that uh, here's this author speaking on behalf of Christianity, perhaps humbly, perhaps reluctantly, but speaking on behalf of Christianity and sharing concepts which your average moral majority member would be very uncomfortable with. But I also like the idea that he's pointing the more liberal members of his audience 
in a direction by you know trying to meet them where they're at, trying to speak their language as well. And after he's gone through, this is the very end of his book, as a matter of fact. I'm spoiling again. <laughs> after he goes through the process of describing kind of, you know, what the uh, what the real basics of the morality of right and wrong are, and then introducing Christianity as a somewhat completely different idea, uh, that you don't have to be Christian to understand the morality of right and wrong. Everyone has an instinctive notion of what it means to be wronged by someone else. But he comes down to this last part, and he's talking about, well, where are we heading? What's next and what's new? So I'm going to quote uh, kind of in a scattershot way from the, uh, the New Men chapter of Mere Christianity. Perhaps a modern man can understand the Christian idea best if he takes it in connection with evolution. Everyone now knows about evolution, though, of course, some educated people disbelieve it. I would say there's some uneducated people as well. But everyone has been told that man has evolved from lower types of life. Consequently, people often wonder, what is the next step? When is the thing beyond man going to appear? Imaginative writers sometimes try to describe this next step, the Superman, as they call him. But they usually only succeed in picturing someone a good deal nastier than man as we know him, and then try to make up for it by sticking on some extra legs or arms or powers. But supposing that the next step was to be something even more different from the earlier steps than they would have ever dreamed of. And isn't it not likely that it would be? Thousands of centuries ago, huge, very heavily armored creatures were evolved. If anyone had at that time been watching the course of evolution, he probably would have expected that it was going to go on to heavier and heavier armor. But he would have been wrong. The future had a card up its sleeve which nothing at the time would have led him to expect. It was going to spring on him a little, naked, unarmored animal with a much better brain. And with those brains, those animals were going to master the whole planet. They were not merely going to have more power than the prehistoric monsters. They were going to have a new kind of power. The next step was not only going to be different, but different with a new kind of difference. The stream of evolution was not going to flow on in the direction in which it had been flowing. In fact, it was going to take a sharp bend. Now, it seems to me that most of the popular guesses at the next step that people are making now are making just the same sort of mistake. People see, or at any rate they think they see, men developing greater brains and getting greater mastery over nature. And because they think the stream is flowing in that direction, they imagine that it will go on flowing in that direction. But I cannot help thinking that the next step will really be new. It will go off in a direction that you could never have dreamed of. It would hardly be worth calling a new step unless it did. He goes on to say that I should expect the next stage in evolution may not be a stage in evolution at all. He would expect that evolution itself as a method of producing change will be superseded. And finally, I should not be surprised if, when the thing happened, very few people noticed it was happening. What a provocative claim. What kind of notice would animals have made if, in the course of a microevolution of a natural selection process, would one animal notice that the other animal's coat was distinctly darker or distinctly lighter? Would some of the physiological changes be even less noticeable to what we might call a lower animal? Sometimes these changes happen without even the person being changed being particularly aware of the change itself. Picking back up with C.S. Lewis, Now, if you care to talk in these terms, the Christian view is precisely that the next step has already appeared, and it is really new. It is not a change from brainy men to brainier men. It is a change that goes off in a totally different direction. A change from being creatures of God 
to being sons of God. The first instance appeared in Palestine 2,000 years ago. In a sense, the change is not, quote, evolution, unquote, at all, because it is not something arising out of a natural process of events, but something coming into nature from outside. But that is what I should expect. We arrived at our idea of evolution from studying the past. If there are real novelties in store, then of course our idea, based on the past, will not really cover them. And in fact, this new step differs from all previous ones, not only in coming from outside nature, but in several other ways as well. It is not carried on by sexual reproduction. Need we be surprised at that? There was a time before sex had appeared, as we know it today. Development used to go on by different methods. Consequently, we might have expected that there would come a time when sex disappeared. At the earlier stages, living organisms had either no choice or very little choice about taking the step. Progress was, in the main, something that happened to them, not something that they did. But the new step, the step from becoming creatures to being sons, is at least voluntary in one sense. I have called Christ the first instance of the new man, but of course he is something much more than that. He is not merely a new man, or one specimen of the species, but THE new man. He is the origin and center of the life of all the new men. This step has taken place at a different speed from the previous ones. Compared to the development of man on this planet, the diffusion of Christianity over all the human race seems to go like a flash of lightning. For 2,000 years is almost nothing in the history of the universe. The stakes are higher. By falling back at the earlier steps, a creature lost, at the worst, its few years of life on this earth. Very often, it did not lose even that. By falling back at this step, we lose a prize which, in the strictest sense of the word, is infinite. So it is in this list of ideas that C.S. Lewis comes out and basically says, in some ways, the relationship of the Holy Spirit the relationship of people to Jesus Christ, the change in relationship from a spiritual perspective, is in itself a new evolutionary paradigm. Again, bold words, not words that I'm necessarily going to claim at this time that I agree or disagree with. I'm simply putting them out there as a way of saying that Pentecost is a huge celebration on the Christian calendar. It means much more than the church often acknowledges, because the scriptures go into great detail and direct what we might call Christmas stories and Easter stories about what it meant for Christ to come into the world and what it, what it meant for Christ to leave the world in the manner that he did. What he's left behind, however, is the Holy Spirit. And that's a difference that in C.S. Lewis's words truly makes a difference. <laughs> Hi there, this is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement and then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. When Christians talk about God, uh, and I'm tempted to put God in quotes there, God changing hearts and lives, they are referring to the Holy Spirit. It may be uncomfortable for non-Christians, and perhaps even for some Christians, to hear this manifestation of deity referred to as a person. Sorry, that concept cuts to the very core of what it means to have a personal relationship with God. Therefore, 
you can't play the person card on me if I introduce my different drummer this week as the Holy Spirit. Those of you who know me best would be quick to anticipate that I'm going to say the Holy Spirit uh, is too much for me to cover in one simple, different drummer you know, context. There's a lot there. And what is there is, frankly, quite a bit more abstract than pointing to someone who lived 2,000 years ago, and, and we have some written record of people who claim to be witnesses of his ministry, and that that written record has some corroboration in the writings of other people, both Romans and Jews, who didn't really have a, you know, didn't really have a stake in the personal relationship side of things. Um, the Holy Spirit is a much more challenging idea. Uh, references to the Holy Spirit occur throughout Scripture, and I'm going to talk about a few of them. But we again, we don't have something uh, as easy to isolate as the Easter story. We've left the Gospels now. We've gone into the book of Acts. But if we go back into the Gospels, particularly the last part of John's Gospel, there's quite a bit of description, quite a bit of mention of who the Holy Spirit is. But before we get there, I think there's an important concept that I need to discuss. And that is ideas about the difference between the physiological nature of humanity and the spiritual nature of humanity. I meet a fair number of people who are quick to deny that there is any truth whatsoever to the notion that we as humans are spiritual beings, that we're, in their minds, 100% physical. You're born, you live, you die. That's the end of that. Well, here's my question, and I ask this question with a genuine amount of openness. I uh, don't feel that I have all the answers here, but I, I know I've got a question, and I know I've got a question that means something to me regardless what the answer may come out to be, unless the answer is simply a cop-out, unless the answer is a refusal to take the question seriously, then I'm listening. Is there a difference between your mind and your brain? Let me ask that again because it matters from what I might describe as a purely naturalist's perspective. Is there a difference between your mind and your brain? If we are simply physical creatures... And uh, from a physiological perspective, that's all there is. Where does your mind reside? Is your mind all of you? Is your brain equal to your mind? Or is there something more going on there besides just the electrical activity in a certain part of your organic body systems? Uh, it's not unlike the question that you might get in a church instead, which would be, what is the difference between your head and your heart? Again, we're not talking about your head as a physiological external structure sitting on top of your skeleton. And we're not talking about your heart as the central muscular pump driving your circulatory system. The question is that even when you get inside the concept of my mind, there is a difference between things that I, I describe as knowing and things that I describe as feeling. And we all have that sort of idea in our heads. And I think it's an accurate idea that there are things that we respond to sometimes at a level that almost feels instinctual, but it's not instinctual. It's different from just a knee-jerk uh, reaction of an animal, but it's also not you know, thought out in advance, uh, premeditated, carefully calculated. There's something goes on there where we describe it in terms like, well, my heart went out to that person. Or in the case of most Christians, the terminology you often hear is, I felt called to go or called to respond. And it's in that place where there's a distinction that I would make 
between me as a person with, a, I think, a healthy functioning mind, knowing what I think, and me knowing that there is a thought that I have that didn't originate with me, or to be as generous as I possibly can, if it did originate with me, it originated with me at a level that is so deeply embedded within my subconscious, that is so unconscious, even to my subconscious, that uh, it hardly makes sense to describe it as, as me at all. If the idea comes to me as a complete surprise to myself, we might come away with an idea that my brain is somehow responsible for it, but I'm making a distinction between my brain here and my mind here. That's an important point to deal with because to me, it raises a question that has to be at least acknowledged, if not addressed and answered, when we start off with the notion that it's impossible for somebody to have a Holy Spirit living within them. Because I believe that all of us have our own soul living within us. And that idea of soul really gets close to making that distinction that we need to understand between, well, where does your brain stop physiologically and your mind pick up? What is, what is the glue holding that together? Or what is going on there that is beyond just mere uh, biology? And so if you have that idea that many of us think we have a soul, or at the very least, there's something going on there that could be arguably described as a soul, then you know, what does it mean if that soul is sharing space? What does it mean if that quote-unquote heart is being opened to the influence and the guiding and the leadership and the love of God? Well, there it is. I've raised the question. Let me get actually to the different drummer with you know, another question that I'm going to answer this time. What is the Holy Spirit or who is the Holy Spirit? The Greek word that is translated as Holy Spirit is paraclete. It means to call alongside for the purpose of helping, to exhort, to console, to encourage, to come alongside, to join, to become part of, to live within. Paraclete. One of my favorite films is the Arthur Hiller film. I actually think of The Hospital as being more of a Patty Chayefsky film. It's one of those moments in film history where I think the writer actually deserves as much or more credit for the quality of the finished film as the director does. And uh, in the uh, film The Hospital, made in 1971, the, one of the main characters believes he's on a mission from God, and he describes himself as the paraclete of Kaborka, <laughs> which is told for comic effect. I don't think it's a blasphemous film. If you see it, you'll know what I mean. But um, paraclete in this, in this sense means to come alongside for the purpose of helping, to exhort, to console, to encourage. And you hear this term used in lots of ways. Jesus called the Holy Spirit another paraclete. That's a, you know, obviously a specific translation, but uh, John chapter 14, verse 16 is where you'll find it. And in this, he means that, he, that Jesus is also a paraclete. So if, the, if Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit as another helper, at the same time, Jesus is confirming and identifying himself as a helper. So when Christ was on earth, he was a helper to his followers. Christ continues to be our paraclete in heaven in the sense of being our advocate with God the Father should we you know, commit sin and, and need someone there to speak on our behalf. But in this earth, in this earthly lifetime, we're in the absence of the earthly absence of Jesus Christ. And so Christ has sent the Spirit to carry on his work of helping. So what are some of the other words that are, we can avoid this parakletos concept, this, this difficult foreign term? We hear that described, the Holy Spirit described variously as being a comforter. Um, that's what you tend to see in the King James Version. 
the helper, which is what you tend to see most often in the New American Standard Bible. Now, the thing I like most about the New American Standard Bible, and the reason helper is the term you've probably heard me use the most so far, is that uh, the NASB is a word-for-word translation. So rather than trying to, uh, to paraphrase or to get close to a paraphrase in terms of trying to translate idea to idea, uh, NASB is one of the translations that tries to be actually accurate from a word-to-word perspective. One of the other terms you often hear is advocate. That's uh, in the New English Bible. Um, and probably might have been the terminology or the method of terminology that we would translate from Martin Luther's writings. Counselor is the Revised Standard Version. Uh, that would have been the version of the Bible that I would have read when I was growing up. It was a very popular translation in English in the uh, probably before the 1960s, but I would have encountered it in the 1960s and 1970s. And finally, perhaps the most modern biblical uh, paraphrase that you see out there today in terms of popularity is Eugene Peterson's The Message, and that one refers to the Holy Spirit as friend. I'm comfortable with all of these definitions, and in truth, it's probably a combination of them to get the right kind of attributes uh, in line to say, well, what is the Holy Spirit? What is that about? What is that person supposed to do? Comforter, helper, advocate, counselor, and friend. There are biblical passages where Jesus is speaking to his followers, and he says interesting things like, you know what, when I'm gone, you're going to be arrested, and you're going to be taken before the Jewish high court, before the Sanhedrin, and you're going to be called upon to explain yourself. You're going to be told to cease and desist your activity. You're going to be asked to defend yourself. And Jesus says, do not worry about what you will say when these things happen. For the Holy Spirit, your helper, will tell you what to say. He will continue to educate, to inform, to encourage, and at times correct and convict you by representing me when I have gone to heaven, essentially. Uh, it's a very weak paraphrase. I'm not, I'm, I'm not looking at the biblical passage in front of me today. But it is basically that idea. And um, just a few chapters later, because you know, if I refer to that as coming at the end of the Gospels, then in the fourth chapter of Acts, I believe, that is exactly what occurs. Uh, Peter and uh, John get pulled in before the Sanhedrin. They get told to pipe down or there'll be big consequences. Uh, sit down and shut up, young man, was kind of the message they were being given from their elders, their Jewish elders. And uh, they didn't go into there with uh, a whole lot of pre-planned understanding of what, what it is that they would say. But when the time came, they did have the right answers. They did have the right information. And they were able to speak with an uncanny boldness for people who weren't educated like Pharisees, who had essentially uh, grown up as tradesmen, as fishermen. And uh, they pretty much did the same thing that Joshua does, if you're, uh, if you're very familiar with the Old Testament, where they kind of drew a line in the sand and said, you know what, um, we've seen some things that we have a hard time understanding ourselves. We've seen some things that have changed our worldview. We have seen the dead come back to life. We've seen a man who told us he was going to do it. We didn't even understand what he meant. He actually did it. He gave us specific instructions about what was going to happen 40 or 50 days later. It did happen, as he described. We've now been able to make an incredible difference in the lives of people. Um, we've seen miraculous healing. We've seen prophetic visions of the future come true. We're not going to stop talking. Literally, what Joshua told the Jewish people coming out of the wilderness after the Exodus, you know, you've got a decision to make. Are you going to follow your own path? Are you going to follow the Lord? And Joshua said, as for me and my family, we're going to follow the Lord. And it's essentially that same kind of concept that Peter and John shared with the Sanhedrin. 
we've seen something that's a game changer, and we're going to do what the Holy Spirit is telling us to do. You do what you want, but we're going to do this, and you're going to have to deal with it. Well, again, to speak with that kind of boldness is completely inconsistent with this group of people who were basically cowering in fear just a few chapters earlier, if you get to that moment between the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection. And of course, one of the differences is encounters with the resurrected Christ. Um, But the other difference, even after Christ did leave, even after what's described as his ascension into heaven, you've got the other difference being, well, how does this group of people now know enough to go out and, and preach the word. It's one of the first things that happens when you encounter somebody who does have a, a sort of conversion experience, a life-changing experience, and they say, okay, well, I am going to follow this Jesus Christ now, but what am I going to say? Um, how am I going to do that? I, I don't know enough to do that. I'm not educated. I haven't learned. I haven't read enough. I, you know, All the excuses come in, and the reality is that you know most people who you know, I have had a long relationship with um, the Holy Spirit. No, not not to worry about it. Know that it's, it's a silly thing for somebody to be concerned about. Because if you're in a right relationship with God, the Holy Spirit's going to give you the words you need, and you're going to have what you need to say. For me, the number one reason I'm citing the Holy Spirit as a different drummer has very little to do with earthly wisdom, has very little to do with knowledge and the ability to speak. It has more to do with awareness. I do not believe that I'm an individual who is naturally aware of what's going on around me. Um, That was one of the biggest impediments to my ability to have long-term success as a traditional field reporter had I continued to function as a journalist. Because in many ways, I'm I'm kind of occupied by things in my mind a little more than I probably ought to be, and I'm sometimes not all that uh, keenly observing what happens uh, you know, when I'm walking down the street, I, I, I'm not going to miss a car accident, of course, but I might miss a purse snatching just because I'm just not paying that kind of attention. And yet there have been many times in my life where I have been stopped in my tracks by a sudden change in direction where the thought is, listen, you're going to need to go inside this building and you're going to need to you know, wait for that person to get off the phone. And I'm like, well, I don't even know what that means. Why am I suddenly feeling a compulsion to go into this building and speak to somebody I don't even know? Uh, And why is it important that I do so in this particular sequence where I need to uh, speak to somebody, but not yet? Um, They're going to be on the phone first, need to wait till they hang up. What's all that about? And I've seen that play itself out in so many ways that I actually have found myself being the person who's able to be there for somebody at the moment when the person actually needed somebody most, when it all came out of completely out of left field. Well, you know what? I've heard people describe Christians as being arrogant people, you know, that Um, To assume that you've got a special relationship with the universe is on its face a pretty bold statement to be making. To call yourself a son of God uh, and and to make a distinction between yourself and other objects of creation, in other words, to take being uh, just another creature to being a son of God, well, there's something about that 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 strikes me as as being easily confused with an arrogant uh, attitude. And... To be honest, I've met more than just a few Christians who legitimately deserve to have a finger pointed their way and an accusation of arrogance leveled toward them. But the only thing I can think of that is more arrogant than that is presuming that I am just that smart, that my subconscious mind is that good, that from a level of the collective human unconscious, I am more tuned in than Carl Jung ever dreamed anybody would be 
and that I've I've got it going on, and that if if I am able to you know step in and be a helper for somebody, if I'm able to come alongside somebody and be there when they need me most, even having known nothing about them before, having never seen them or met them before, having no idea what the reason for my compulsion to 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 be in that position is, it's incredibly arrogant for me to say that that couldn't possibly have anything to do with the Holy Spirit. That God doesn't have any role to play and has nothing to do with it. And it's all just how, how much of a genius I am. I would dismiss that argument just outright. To my mind, it's every bit as arrogant as somebody who's never driven a vehicle before, who has no idea how to drive, and takes his, his chauffeur or his taxi driver or his bus driver uh, or his train conductor so for granted that he considers himself to be responsible for his own transportation. At some point, you've got to say, I may not understand the, the nuts and bolts of how this relationship works, but I believe someone has come alongside me to provide the assistance that I need to function as well as I want to, or as well as I'm at least moment to moment capable of as a human being. And I identify it as the Holy Spirit, not only because of my personal faith, not only because of my experience with um, you know, what the Bible describes as as a Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but more because of where that question leads me to. It's not a mental illness in that it leads me to um, uh, socially unacceptable behavior or a behavior that's a danger to myself and others. Time and time again, I see it leading me to a place where I'm being called to come alongside others in exactly the same manner that the Holy Spirit has come alongside me. There is a character to God. It's described in the Bible, and I see it in my own personal relationship. There is a character to God that shows itself not only in Scripture, but in the actions of the Holy Spirit. And my hope is that if through this friendship with Christ, if through this friendship with the Holy Spirit, some of those good qualities begin to rub off on me, then it should be obvious why I'm citing the Holy Spirit as a different drummer, and perhaps just as obvious why I refer to the Holy Spirit as a personhood of God, who's a friend of mine. Thank you for listening to this inappropriate conversation about the time of year that Christians call Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. If you'd like to contribute some dialogue to this conversation yourself, I can be reached at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com, where comments are enabled. Thanks for listening.
Music by Kevin McLeod.